Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stewart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Never Say Never Again. Starring Sean Connery, Kim Basinger, Claus Maria Brendur, Barbara Carrera, Max von Sydow, Bernie Casey, and directed by Irvin Kirshner. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie, and I'm never going to say not recommend again. <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope you will. <laughs> really? You say that before this movie? Can we have it in writing, please? <laughs> We got you to a kill coming up? <laughs> I'm just trying to appease the Bond fans who think we're dissing on all of them by giving them a false promise. Yeah, you should go back and be kinder to the ones they liked. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, nobody celebrates this one. Oh, well, that's not true, but this one is not part of the canon. Definitely not part of the canon, and it certainly has gained a little bit of respect in the past few years, but we're not talking on Her Majesty's Secret Service kind of respect. It has actually got a little bit of more momentum recently, but most people usually trash on this one. And is that fair or not? Well, we're going to discuss that today here at Now Playing. How did it happen? That's the first question I think anybody would think is that we know how Casino Royale happened. Someone had the rights to the very first book and they never let those go. But Thunderball was always controlled by Eon. Eon made Thunderball early. So how did we get a remake? Back when Thunderball, we discussed this then a little bit. I don't want to get too much in the detail, but here's the gist. Ian Fleming, never letting a good idea die, he and a couple of his friends decided to write a treatment for a movie of James Bond, and they came up with this whole idea, and after working on it for a couple years, the whole thing fell through. When it came time to write another book, Fleming took all of those ideas and put them into Thunderball. Now, it wasn't the exact same thing as the screen treatment they came up with, but it was close enough. They sued, and they settlement was that Fleming gets the rights to the novel, and this man, Kevin McClory, gets the rights to the movie. So when it came time to make the movie in 1965, Broccoli and Saltzman cut a deal with this guy, and he was the sole producer on it, and the part of the contract was you cannot make another version of this movie for 10 years. And so in 1976, when that was up, he went right into trying to make another one, and he actually got Connery then on board to do it. And then around the spy who loved me, there was some legal action. United Artists sued to put a stop to that movie. They succeeded then, but in the early 80s, with the power of Jack Schwartzman, the producer who's married at the time to Talia Shire. She's a Coppola. Yeah, and so with his power behind him with Warner Brothers, they finally got this movie made in 1983. So that's how it got happened. This man's been trying to make this movie for years because he wants his profits, and he keeps suing Eon for more and more of the profits. We talked a little bit about this during For Your Eyes Only, which is why they can't use Spectre or Blofeld, because those concepts came from the original screen treatment of Thunderball, and Thunderball was the first novel to feature those characters and ideas in the Fleming canon. But what really got me about this whole thing was how early Connery jumped on, and I was trying to think, why would Connery want to do this? They gave him script credentials, they gave him producer credit, and I was just wondering why, and then it occurred to me, after Bond, he was not doing all those great high-profile movies. I think that's the time he was doing Zardoz, as Stuart likes to point out to us, and things like that. And after Never Say Never Again, of course, his career took off again like a shot. So it turned out to be a good move for him to go back into James Bond to get noticed again as a leading man in movies. Hey, he had Time Bandits in there, but I hear what you're <laughs> saying. Yeah, there was a lot of Drek, and I saw it. You know, I remember seeing Meteor. I remember seeing Zardoz. I remember that lost decade, if you will, between Diamonds Are Forever and this one. 
they were notable movies, but they were notable flops or disappointments. I remember seeing Murder on the Orient Express, and a lot of people loved that movie, and he was in it in a supporting role, and I'm like, what is the big deal? So it's Sean Connery. He's not really in this movie. You know what I mean? And then after this, Never Say Never Again, he had Name of the Rose, and after that, The Untouchables, and boom. Then we all know Sean Connery from his resurgence in the 90s and the late 80s. Well, this was always Exhibit A in my case against Sean Connery as a child. I saw Never Say Never when it came out in theaters. That was during the time when our family would go, New Bond were going. We didn't pay attention to whether it was official or not. This was my first probably theatrical exposure for sure, and maybe my first exposure to any Connery at the time. I didn't like it. I remember walking out of this one feeling bored, feeling like I didn't get it. Why would anyone want to watch this guy when we could have Octopussy or For Your Eyes Only? I mean, to me, this was proof that Roger Moore was a better Bond than Sean Connery. And this is the first James Bond movie I saw in the theater as well. My parents took all of us to go see it. And we had not seen Octopussy the summer before. Both movies came out that same year. And I have to agree with you, Stuart. At the time, I really didn't get it. And I really didn't care for it. And when it was on cable, I didn't watch it. I do remember watching the Nickelodeon show, Lights, Camera, Action, when they have like five episodes. That's all they had them running the same ones over and over again. And they had one on Never Say Never Again. And I liked watching that episode a lot because I told you about the stunt work. But when the actual movie came on, I didn't want to watch it again. It's one of those weird things. And I had no clue about this movie. I didn't hear about it at the time, mainly because it wasn't named after a vagina. I didn't really know James Bond beyond that. And when I went back and saw all the James Bond films in the day, I don't think I ever saw this one because it wasn't official. It wasn't licensed to TNT with all the others. It didn't come up as an official one in my Leonard Maltin guide and everything that I was going through. I'd never seen the unofficial Casino Royale, and I am 90% sure this is my first time ever seeing this movie for this review for now playing. Oh, cool. But, you know, coming back to it, this was one of the ones I was eager to see again because Thunderball, you know, this is a direct remake to something we've already seen that I didn't think entirely worked. You know, I ended up not recommending Thunderball. It wasn't a heavy not recommend. I thought parts of it worked, but it felt sloppy. It felt meandering. It felt like it could be done better. And yeah, give Connery a decade with some new people that weren't caught up in the Eon machinery. Maybe it would be something fresh and original. Maybe they would do something with the project that Eon would never dare do. That's what I'm hoping when I'm coming back. That said, this is a remake of Thunderball, and I really wonder how strict the lawsuit was on how direct a remake it had to be, because I was wondering how it would differ from the official Bond works, but knowing it was a remake of Thunderball, and when we watched Thunderball, it was a fairly strong not recommend for me, so I was not looking forward to revisiting that story, but I was hoping maybe they'd tweak it and make it a bit more enjoyable. But Brock, do you know, were they limited in what they could and couldn't change? Yes. From what I've done, a little bit of research for this podcast, he actually went back to the screen treatment that he and Fleming and the other guy wrote and pulled some ideas that Fleming cut out and put them back in this movie. I don't think he can adapt the Eon version because they wrote that script. So he had to use the book and anything else around that for this movie. But he couldn't lawnmower man it, right? He couldn't go, oh, it's based on a book and then create an entirely new James Bond adventure. It had to be the script that his name had been on before. Right, it has to be the same plot. So when they came up with The Spy Who Loved Me, one of the original plots they came up with, because as we talked about during the Spy Who Loved Me podcast, they said they only could use the title because that was the contract they booked with Fleming. And when they started writing that movie, it was very similar to Thunderball. So they were going back and forth about what he has rights to, what he doesn't have rights to. So I think you're on to something, Arnie, that he had to stick to the treatments he had. But what's strange about it, Arnie, is in this movie, they have the white Persian cat. So I don't know how that worked, because that's completely an Eon creation for Blofeld. And I could not find anything about any fallout behind the cat (laughs) after that. Oh, the cat was pissed. He was so mad. (laughs) (laughs) He was calling Morris. He was calling Garfield. He's like, can you believe this shit? Arnie, give him a plot. Let's find out what we did get. (laughs) Well, I went to my Thunderball plot. I copied and pasted, tweaked a few things, but I am a little older than I was when I read that plot. So Spectre is back, led by number one operative Blofeld, and he has a new plan. He has an agent get eye surgery so his retinal scan matches that of the President of the United States. 
Using that false eye, he replaces some test missiles being fired with actual warheads. The warheads crash into the ocean, and only Blofeld and his operatives know the location. With the bombs, Blofeld demands NATO pay him an annual ransom of 25% of their wealth, or else he will let set off the nukes. Due to the severity of the case, all MI6 double-O agents are called in, despite them having been retired by the current M, who hates the double-O's. Bond tracks down the pilot's sister Domino and her boyfriend, Spectre agent Maximilian Largo. Much back and forth ensues between Bond and Largo, fighting over both the love of Domino as well as Largo's place as Blofeld's man put in charge of the nuclear weapons. Bond tells Domino of her brother's death and Largo's part in it, so now she's on his side helping him to find the nukes and free herself of Largo's control. Bond and Domino are taken captive and taken to Spectre base in Africa, but Bond helps Domino escape and they reunite with CIA agent Felix Leiter and use a piece of jewelry Largo gave Domino to figure out the bomb's location. Huh? Why would anyone ever inscribe on someone's jewelry a map to where they're sticking a nuclear device? <laughs> because they couldn't remember where they parked. Right, exactly. <laughs> Bond and Leiter don scuba gear and backed up by troops infiltrate Largo's underwater base and Largo tries to escape with one of the warheads. Bond stops him and Domino kills her lover and we cut to Bond and Domino enjoying some drinks in a hot tub as credits roll. So much to my chagrin, it's almost beat for beat the same as Thunderball. There are some differences here and there, but... It's the same movie. It's the same story. It is truly a remake. It is a step away from being Gus Van Sant's Psycho. No, it's not. Psycho is supposed to be like shot-for-shot remake kind of thing. And I said a step away. It is that step, yes. It is not a shot-for-shot remake, but damn if it's not the same story. If you are interested in knowing the Bond stories and not seeing films made, you could watch one or the other and get that same story. Yeah, but story's not the important thing here, Arnie. It's all about tone. It's all about doing it again. I mean, I think there's something kind of meta in this setup. I didn't really like that they sent Bond to a spy at the beginning of Thunderball, but here it makes sense. Because we've been spending a lot of time with Roger Moore Bond, and Emma's right. He's full of free radicals. He needs to clean off. We need to have somebody get him back to health and restore him to what he used to be. Now, I don't want to knock Roger Moore. I think some of his last couple movies have been his best, and I enjoy what he does in its own way, but I am all up for taking that exact same story and doing it in a new way. I think that that's fine. I don't think that you can say that they're the same experience, even if they use the exact same script. This is something else, and I'm up for doing something else. I don't have a problem with a remake if they do something clever and different with it. I don't have a problem with being the same plot. They do enough different things here that if you're not familiar as we are with Thunderball, you may not recognize it right away. You know, we talk about how other plots of Bond movies are very similar. Here we know that it's very close to Thunderball. And yes, it's basically the same plot, but they try to do a lot of different things here, especially at the end, to make it different enough so you don't feel like you're watching what you're saying, Arnie. Did they succeed is a different story completely. Well, I mean, I don't feel like they tried a lot of things to make it feel different. I think that there are things that they do that make it feel like a different experience. Case in point, when we start out, there is no gun barrel sequence. There is no classic James Bond theme. There are no nude women leaping around in the credit sequence. It is an opportunity to rewrite the James Bond movie grammar. That's what I'm excited to see. Which means that I'm incredibly disappointed when the music kicks in and we see Bond killing lots of people brutally to some of the worst light rock I've ever heard. It is abysmal. This song, I think, may be the worst Bond song that we have maybe there's a madonna one coming up i just loathe but <laughs> there's no way there's no way that anything we will hear is worse than this there's no I'm way i'm sorry her t-pain die another day i think i'd rather never say never again but this is a very close one though this very well could be the end unfortunately it's a freaking earworm i've been singing it for a week 
Yeah, it's a really catchy song, but I'm right there with you. I hated it. Dreadful. I mean, at best, it's a Barry Manilow B-side. I mean, it's just <laughs> the production is terrible. They couldn't even get anyone to sing it. I mean, they wanted to give it to Bonnie Tyler, you know, Total Eclipse of the Heart, holding out for a hero. She was like, oh, great. Yes, I want to do it. And then she was like, never. <laughs> never say never to never say never again. You know you got problems when somebody who needs this hit says, I ain't going to sing it. And so <laughs> they ended up getting the wife of the guy who played the music in it it's not eon that's what it says to me right off the bat but not in a good way i mean i was looking forward to that difference and now i'm realizing that nobody does it better than eon well you talk about rewriting the grammar i feel that some of it is forced like the gun barrel sequence and that james bond music the bond music quite clearly is going to be owned by eon so they have to do something a little new but I felt that the interlaced 007s was their attempt to create that new icon so that they could have their competing 007 franchise with a opening that is their own, but yet somewhat in the same kind of vein. But the fact that they went with an opening song named after the movie, singing the title of the movie, tells me they are not interested in recreating. They're interested in just aping and ripping off and trying to steal the money. I mean, right now we're talking Night of the Living Dead over on our donation series, and we talk about how George Romero didn't have the copyright, and there are some abysmal abysmal ripoffs and remakes because they didn't have the rights but these aren't people trying to do an artistic vision these are people trying to take advantage of romero's bad situation and get a cash grab that's what i feel this is just based off the opening it sets that tone for me that they're not interested in rewriting and reinventing james bond they're interested in stealing the audience away from eon by bringing back sean connery and going we have the real bond now come give us your money because we have nothing better to do than to spend what 20 years trying to make this ripoff movie and now we have give us the money for it i don't think that opening tells me everything right there but i think you're right i think this movie is all about the money and only for that and it's unfortunate that it's true <laughs> but they had a wonderful opportunity and they squandered it and to be clear, it's a one-shot. It's not like if this is a big hit, they can then go make another Bond with Connery or anybody else and keep going. Yes, they can. How? They fought the battle in the courts a decade later that they have the right to make sequels to this. And they were winning those court cases, and it was injunction after injunction, fight after fight, but ruling after ruling kept ruling in their favor. They could make Thunderball 2. Interesting. Yeah, see, I understood that they had Timothy Dalton lined up to remake this again in the 2000s, but the six-year hiatus after License to Kill was because of those court battles of the legal rights for James Bond and who has the rights to do this and that. But I didn't get the impression he won because if he won, Arnie, the movies would have come out in the 90s. Again, he would win and then they'd appeal and injunct again. It went around and around. But all of these characters like Blofeld and Bond, who Eon could no longer use... It had been ruled, although never definitively financed and made, obviously, that this guy could continue his Bond franchise. And it was looking early this century that there could be two competing Bond franchises. Around the time Daniel Craig was announced, or perhaps a little bit before, this guy was once again trying to make a sequel to Never Say Never Again with his legal rights. And what ended up happening is... MGM bought the rights to this movie. This movie is now owned by MGM because MGM said, we'll give you Spider-Man, Sony. Right. Oh, interesting. Well, that's all fine and good, but then it begs the question even more. If you knew this could be a new start, why aren't you coming up with a new James Bond theme? Why aren't you doing something that feels like we've never seen it in a Bond movie before? I mean, I guess we have never seen Bond slaughter people to Muzak before. I have never seen that before, <laughs> and I never, ever want to see it again. <laughs> Well, what gets me about the opening scene is because we find out it's a training exercise. Oh, that's even worse. It was it's, all it's a like dream. Even... <laughs> so he chokes people and he shoots them with these darts. So who knows it's a training exercise and who doesn't <laughs> because they're all getting hurt. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. 
My favorite thing is when he throws the bomb and it's like a bird call that makes everyone deaf. I'm like, wait, I don't understand. And it doesn't make Bond deaf. Yeah, this opening is all kinds of mixed messages. And then they want to end it with a twist that it's really a Patty Hearst scenario. And the woman he's rescuing, even though she's tied up, has been trained or brainwashed to stab him. And then surprise, it all meant nothing. Say what you will about him in the jetpack and Thunderball. That was a better opening, you know, beating up the guy in drag at his own funeral. Better <laughs> opening than this. If you say so, sir. I'm thinking that this was actually a little better. Arnie, you said you liked it. You're on record as liking that. And this is better. It's a good action scene. The music's killing it. I don't care if you think the violence is gritty. When you have that saxophone blaring in the background, I don't know what I'm watching. It's like the guy scoring this was not even looking up at the screen to see what was happening. Well, the whole movie has some severe issues with the music. The, oh. the music in this movie is completely dissonant to what's going on on the screen at the time. I don't know what the hell this guy was smoking when he was <laughs> assigned to do this. It's trying to be modern, but then it has this horribly dated 60s kind of score to it that's jazzy and and fun and it just totally goes against each other yeah it's, it's the worst score that we've ever had at least casino royale the unofficial 1967 one while it failed in all sorts of ways as a bond movie had a great awesome burt Bacharach score this movie can't even brag about this right now this movie is competing with casino royale about who screwed the pooch worse I can't disagree that I did have some Casino Royale flashbacks during this, but honestly, guys, the music never bugged me. It really didn't. I didn't have a huge problem with it, even in this opening scene. And even though I was a little bit groaning when it was turned out to be a training exercise, it was an exciting opening. I took it as this is the pre-credit sequence, even though it's during the credits. It's James Bond on a mission, as we've seen in so many other Eon films. and. I'm going to say it. I've enjoyed Roger Moore's Bond, but I like this Connery. Connery in this seems to be the best Bond Connery's ever been. This is a strong, confident, swaggering Bond. Connery has the confidence here that in his early films, I don't think he was established enough to have. In his later Bond films, he just didn't want to be there and it showed. Here, we're finally getting a modern Sean Connery who's a badass. This is the untouchable Sean Connery right here. This is a tough guy. And he's older, but only slightly older than Roger Moore. He looks a lot older than Roger Moore, though. Yeah, I think Roger Moore wins with that, yeah. <laughs> Actually, Sean Connery's younger at the time uh, than John Roger Moore was. Yeah. You know, Connery has always been fitter. He's always had a build that's burlier than Roger Moore, but Moore's got that fountain of youth pouring into him. There's something about <laughs> that tan that he does. I don't know. He always has photographed much younger than what he is, at least up to this point. But yeah, Connery, they're letting it show. I mean, I think they're wanting him to be great. By sending him to the spa, by saying you're old and out of shape and you need to get it back, they're acknowledging that this Bond may be over the hill and that the arc of his character this time is, does he still have it? I'm surprised to hear you say that you think, if I'm hearing you correctly, this is the best Connery performance as Bond will ever see. I believe it is. I believe here he has the swagger and the confidence of 007, and he kind of had that in the early ones, but it just never felt embodied the way it does here. Here his every movement, his every action, his every line come off to me as picture perfect for James Bond. I don't agree with you, and I'll tell you why. I got the confidence you're getting, especially in the action scenes, and I got the age because how could you not? He's playing it. But I didn't get what you're getting with the whole best performance thing, because I think From Russia With Love is a much stronger performance for him. I think this one, he's hindered by a lot of other problems as well. Co-stars, setup, script, etc., but I don't see what you're seeing here, Arnie. I, I don't understand where you're getting it from. I'm getting it from the charisma he's exuding, despite all those other things you mentioned. Now, you talk about From Russia With Love, and that may be a more nuanced performance. That may have a little bit more depth and emotion to it and range. But here, he's a hell of a lot of fun to watch. He's like a proto Bruce Willis and Die Hard with the charisma coming off of him and the one-liners. He's really selling me as the fun action hero who can do these one-liners. He's very 80s in that way, but 
it is an entire tone he is setting that is working for me. I don't feel like it's that different. I don't feel like he's being asked to play different. One of my disappointments with the character is ultimately his age doesn't matter. The whole question of does he still have it is answered early and often. Yes. Yes. At no point does his eyesight go bad and does he miss a shot. At no point does his knee give out. At no point is he actually infirmed. This is a way of saying that I'm middle-aged and I still can outrun Roger Moore. And I get it. I think he's as good as he was in the height of the Eon era, meaning that I think he wants to be there. I think he stopped having fun after Thunderball, and I sensed from him in the last couple that, yeah, he just didn't want to be here. Here, I get the sense he wants to be here, but I'm not sure I want him to be here because, yes, the other things are a problem for Never Say Never Again. The only thing that makes me happy early on, the only glimmer of hope, and it's a big one, is when we see Blofeld, Max von Sydow. Oh boy, was I so excited to see him here. We've talked about him before on the show. I was excited to see him too as Blofeld. Having Blofeld be a foreigner I thought really helped. I liked the accent. He kind of looked weird though. He looked a little Obi-Wan Kenobi to me. A little Alec Guinness with the goatee. He didn't exude evil. I thought he was going to give me my father's lightsaber. Yeah, he did not exude evil for me either. And that's weird because this guy always exudes evil. He's ordering us hamburger and I think he's going to kill people. I do think that the take on Blofeld was novel, and I did like that it was closer to the Blofeld you read in the Thunderball book than we saw in other Eon productions, but I just kind of felt he was kind of bland. I was hoping for more of an impression, and I got disappointed. No, he has one little bit about the Tears of Allah. I had to rewind it to even understand what he was saying. And then he disappears for about 90 minutes. But yeah, I was excited. That was it. I had forgotten this part of it. It felt different this time, even though the setup's kind of the same with somebody finding a secret passage, going down into the lair and taking a meeting about what they're going to do with the nukes and all of that. That's all Thunderball-ish, but something about Max von Sydow being able to see his face when we see him being photographed and making his doomsday threats, the fact that they Skull choose to photograph him at cat point, but that we've seen his face, that was all kind of fun. I appreciated that Blofeld was here. I was disappointed that he's going to cede the entire movie to Largo and to number 12, Fatima Blush. I agree. I was not expecting as direct a Thunderball adaptation here. I had forgotten, even though it's just been a handful of weeks, I'd forgotten this was before we'd seen him. And so when we see this, I'm thinking that it's going to be one of the later ones where it's going to end up with Bond and Blofeld mano a mano. I really expected that, especially when you bring someone like Max von Sydow to the role. So the fact that, yeah, he gives it to Largo, who I think is a fine actor in this. I like his performance, but he's no Max von Sydow. I don't know this guy. I'm not excited to see him. Was eminently disappointing. And that all hit me at the spa. All of a sudden, it was like, oh, this one is Thunderball. (laughs) So you liked what Klaus Maria Brandur brought to Largo. Yeah, he had that maniacal, obsessive, evil lover thing going on. I thought he was fun in a stock character kind of way. You've used this word fun twice already here, and I'm surprised because that's one thing I did not get in this movie, and that's one thing I definitely did not get from his performance. I think he certainly was mental in a lot of different ways. He certainly, we saw his passion, we saw his love, we saw his frustration. We haven't seen that in a lot of Bond villains. That was kind of cool that he showed us a human character. That being said, I didn't care about him at all. And even though he loved this woman or thought he loved this woman, he had this domination thing going on and he had this plot. I didn't get that he was terribly evil until way too late. And I didn't get any fun at all about him enjoying what he was doing. I didn't really understand why he was doing what he was doing. And that was missing for me in this performance. Absolutely. Klaus Maria Brandauer is a good actor. And I originally, I did like him. I thought, oh, he's really playing it light. He's really nonchalant. He's really blasé about his presentation of evil. He's like, oh, I'll cut your throat if you ever leave me. (laughs) But he's still acting that way when the nukes are about to go off and all of that. I'm like, this man does not seem like he wants to take over the world. This man doesn't seem to care about anything. The only time I saw him get excited about 
about anything is when he's playing a video game with Bond in the middle of the movie. <laughs> like, I really didn't get a sense that this was his plot, that he wanted involved on it. I mean, at one point, he turns his ship over, the flying saucer. He turns it over to Bond. He's like, ah, snoop around, do whatever you want. And he gets pissed when he gets locked in the dance room and Bond makes a phone call. I'm like, what did you think would happen? I mean, this guy just isn't very good. I don't know how he got to being the number one, but it's not surprising to me that he gets offed in this movie because, yeah, he's just ultimately very unsatisfying in implementing the things you need to do when you're going to blow up the world. Did we watch the same movie? Because I disagree 100% with the things you guys have said. I really got from him evil. I got from him slimy. I got from him desperate. Like, he didn't feel confident enough to be with Domino. He had to subtly threaten her, yet try to charm her with his money. But beyond being Blofeld's number one, as for why he did what he did, you're right on that one, Brock. I don't know why, other than he works for Blofeld and this is what he does. But I got from him this quiet desperation. And when Bond comes in and starts threatening Domino, Domino's his Achilles heel. And so I got everything he did because it started off he was going to show up Bond and prove he's the better man to Domino. And everything from that video game, love the video game, all the way to the scene on the boat, Bond continually one-ups him and literally beats him at his own game, undermining his confidence and setting off his obsessive rage by using Domino against him. What rage? Show me a rage scene. When he smashes up the dance studio. There's some rage. <laughs> okay. He broke a mirror. All right. <laughs> and a stereo. And those were expensive back in the 80s. And he's worried about expenses on his yacht. Yeah. <laughs> I do see what you're seeing in the character, but my reaction to it was not the same you're having. I pointed out you said fun. I didn't get the fun from him. I didn't enjoy watching him do that either. I did give him props, Arnie, though, that he did have a more fleshed out villain than we've ever seen with motions and thoughts and things like that. But he needs to be a little bigger, I think, to want to blow up the world. I just don't understand how this man fits in. I appreciate that he didn't bring the eye patch. I thought that was a nice subtle choice. <laughs> but other than that, like I said... Kind of liked it at first, but at the end of the day, as with this entire movie, was worn down, was bored, was just not into it. And I was electrified by the chemistry between those two actors. The scene with the video game that you mentioned, Stuart, god damn, is that a silly scene. <laughs> and I'm thinking, every time I've seen Bond and I've enjoyed him in these little tete-a-tetes, it's backgammon, or it's baccarat, or it's something like that refined here they're playing what looked to be a version of arachnoid but the actors were selling me on the tension of the scene even though i should be laughing at the war games level graphics so these two you can't turn me against now everybody else in this movie shit everybody from the bearded henchman that attacks Bond in the spa. Who's the guy from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark? He's the big Iron Sheik guy, and he's also the Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, the guy with the beard, the big giant guy. Okay. To blush, to M. I have no idea why M hates the double O's, why he disbanded the double O's. I'm completely lost on all of that. And that is causing the biggest problems for me, not these two actors and their performances. I did enjoy the video game scene. I thought it was entertaining. That was the only time in this movie where start to finish from a scene, I found the entire thing entertaining. I didn't really understand with a movie that has a James Bond that's acknowledging his age and has theme music harkening back to the 60s or maybe even the 50s. They insist on having a modern, cool video game. Exactly, Brock. It felt like a great scene, but it didn't belong in this movie. I agree with everything except that great scene part. This scene is just bug nuts. There are about three scenes in this movie where I literally, like, face-palmed. I'm literally like, I can't believe they did this slapping the forehead. Oh, my God. Yes. If you're going to bring Connery back to show us what it's like to be a middle-aged spy and try to compete in the spy game, why the hell would you have his greatest moment being playing Breakout? with the villain. <laughs> I mean, that... And, and nothing about this makes sense. I can't tell what they're doing. I, I think he's cock-blocking him as he's firing... <laughs> I don't... Honestly, the game doesn't make sense. 
it's ridiculous to see people dressed up in tuxedos playing centipede and watching this the whole thing has lost any luster of that 60s allure i were hoping they were bringing i thought this was a return to elegance the stuff that hasn't been in the more movies i thought we would get classy again and this ain't classy you expected classy when the main bond girl is kim basinger well, you know, I expected <laughs> when the main Bond is Connery, him to look like a Connery Eon Bond. I did. I thought he did, but it was a modern setting. I mean, they're making it more 80s. They're playing video games instead of Baccarat and Felix Leiter's Black. Bernie Casey, which, I mean, Venge of the Nerds, so I like him. I've seen him before. I couldn't have told you a single film, but I'm like, I know this guy. He was in Bill and Ted. He was the teacher who they had to do the history assignment for. He was in Spies Like Us. You're naming comedies I vaguely remember watching 20 years ago. <laughs> but I've seen Fair him enough. before. I, I've seen him before. The guy kind of gave me an Apollo Creed vibe. I felt like he was... Is that well, just because he did a boxing running montage? I went back seriously. to Rocky on that, too. Yeah, I think it was when they were yeah jogging around Italy that it struck me that. And he's doing jabs. I don't know where this little boxing scene came from. That confused me. Yeah. But weren't you guys happy that Felix actually grabbed a gun, got in there with Bond, and actually fought and had his back? We've been complaining about that for how many episodes now? Felix is there with him at the scene, doing the guns instead of sitting back on a boat. In France. That's exactly where I expect the CIA to show up. You're talking about at the end. Yeah, I mean, he shows yes. up at the end. I feel like Felix is a character that really doesn't do anything for the entire movie until the end. But all right, maybe he's the best Felix we've seen. I don't think I've ever liked a Felix. So <laughs> there you go. He's second to me for Jack Lord. Yeah, I think Jack Lord wins just because he yeah. had that Kennedy sheen. But I do have to say, having Bernie Casey, an actor who I did know in this role, made me realize that... The Bond films, Eon and this, don't have characters. They have cardboard cutouts because what does Felix do? What does Felix add? What is Felix's story in this? He's just there to give Bonds of information and then stand back and watch Bond get himself out of trouble. He's a functional character. Most of these people are. I liked him better than Mr. Bean. I mean, there are, in all <laughs> Bond films, official and unofficial, a lot of characters that kind of pop in and pop out that don't do much other than hand a bit of information off that gets Bond spinning off in a new direction. That's what this Felix here does. He doesn't feel like a partner. He doesn't really feel like they fight side by side until that very end where I had already checked out. I liked him better than the Felix they had in the original Thunderball. So in that way, this movie is besting Thunderball. It may be the only way that this movie is besting Thunderball to me. Here's the thing for me is in the similarities, this movie is as weak to me as the original Thunderball. The story is still a semi-ridiculous story. The fact that they went to the spa and he happened to just be there by coincidence. But one thing this movie is doing that I feel is an improvement on most of the Eon films, including the recent ones we've been talking about, is its plot seems to be a little bit more explained. In some of these previous ones, like Octopussy or For Your Eyes Only, if I misunderstand a single line, I suddenly don't understand why Bond has traveled to a new country. Here, every time Bond is going someplace, I know exactly why he's going there, what he's hoping to accomplish. It's not just, here's Bond in a cool postcard location and some action going on. I'm, once again, which is very rare for me, with Bond on an investigation, and I'm always excited when that happens. I feel they've really tightened the script up a little bit. Oh my god. This thing drags! They don't have anything to do, so they just let things go on and on. Everyone can keep up because nothing is happening. Bond, as far as I can tell, is told, hey, some nuclear warheads got stolen, says, I'm going to go to the Bahamas to find the guy that somehow through osmosis I know has them, and then spends all that time fishing and having sex with a villainess, and then leaves. That's it. That's all he ever does. Before he's told he's going to the Bahamas to investigate on this thing, he's already investigating Marco on the yeah. computer. The only way he has a link to that is because he found the cigarettes underneath the mattress with the Largo symbol of the flags. That took me the second time I watched this movie for this podcast to put together. 
I was oh. like, how does he know? How does he know this? So when Arnie, you're saying that the script is tighter together. I had the same experience Stuart did. The first time I'm watching this movie, it's an hour in. I'm like, oh my god, we're only an hour into this. The second time I watched the movie, the thing plays much better. It honestly does. And I don't understand why. It's the same movie. But it certainly does. And what was killing me, Arnie, if you're saying this whole thing is tighter, late in the movie, he finds out where the first nuke is. We don't even see someone defuse that. Bond hears over the telephone. We got the first bomb, Bond. Don't worry about it. We're all set. I'm like, are you kidding me? No, he has the invaluable tip of, hey, it's in Washington, D.C. From that bit of information, they find it. <laughs> and he finds out over the phone. We don't even get to see an action scene showing us that. Oh, this script is miserable. Again, it's a refrain that Carly Simon was just playing over and over in my head. Nobody does it better. You can say what you will about Thunderball. Nobody does it better than Eon. These people that try to do Bond in their own way stink. This script stinks bad. This is better than half the Eon films we've reviewed. No way. Easily. Easily. It's a neck and neck race to the bottom between this and Casino Royale 67. Really? I put Casino Royale 67 above Moonraker. What? The first half of Moonraker was, was darn We're not good. going back to Moonraker, but that is ridiculous. I give them props for trying to do something a little more ambitious with character development in a James Bond movie. Good for them. But I just don't think it works. And I think it drags, drags, drags. I'm right there with Stuart. Oh, so boring. They have this big character in Fatima Blush, for example, who is in a different movie than everybody else. <laughs> she is hysterically bad. She is dreadful. She's so big, and I called her the ostrich lady for the first half before they even started talking her in her name. Those feathers. And good for her. She's having fun. She's the only one I see on screen who's trying to, or at least appearing to have fun in what she's doing. But she is in a completely different movie. I thought she was auditioning for the Pirates of Penzance, frankly. Yes. <laughs> During her death scene, she certainly was. I just didn't understand, like, throwing a snake in a guy's lap so he crashes a car. Why don't you shoot him? It doesn't make any sense the way she does things. And I think the script made her get big that way. And that's not what I call tight. It's called loose. You really could have cut her out of this movie. Was she in Thunderball? Because I don't remember her from Thunderball. There was a Fiona Leopi, I think, or something like that in there. But Fatima Blush was actually a character in the original treatment that Fleming cut out of the book completely, which they put back into Thunderball because McClory produced it in the guise of Fiona. She's crazy. I've only seen her in one other thing, and it was another unfortunate movie as well. Wicked Stepmother. You ever see this thing? It's Betty Davis's last movie. She's cast to replace Betty Davis. Betty Davis died in the middle of filming this horror movie where she's this scary old lady that's a witch that's, you know, popping up. And they're like... Oh, she, Betty's dead. What do we do? Let's bring in this crazy broad. And so in scenes, she would magically transform. So you'd have a scene, Betty Davis comes in, decrepit, shrew, and then like walk out of the scene like this Barbara Carrera, like tap dancing and making things fly around the kitchen. I mean, I don't know what kind of career path this woman is on, but I could only see her being cast in terrible movies. She just seems <laughs> to cultivate badness around her i don't know if it's her energy or her camp value but she brings out the worst in others around her i mean you know she does the whole plot when they're going scuba diving of putting a honing device on bond and sending sharks that have little radio frequencies on their gills after him i mean that was another facepalm moment i mean these plots are terrible and i almost feel like this woman is doing it to this movie she's so bad when she was on screen, it really was painful, and <laughs> I, I had some real problems. Her death scene is laugh-out-loud funny, though. I don't know if it's supposed to be, but... It's the only thing I remembered from seeing it in the theaters. I'm like, this is the one where she gets shot and blows up, and she's just a pair of smoking stilettos. It's the only thing I could have told you about Never Say Never Again before I rewatched it for this viewing. But that is my takeaway from this, was her cackling, being shot with Bond's pin gun, and then boom. It was almost... As cartoony as Jaws flapping his arms. It was really out of place. I couldn't have had a more whiplash reaction if Roger Rabbit had walked in off the side. But <laughs> I somehow found myself enjoying it in a completely crazy way. You weren't the only one. She was nominated for a Golden Globe for this. <laughs> Unbelievable. I could not believe when I read that. I also don't understand her motivations for making him stop everything and write down on a piece of trash that she was the best lay 
he's ever had. That whole thing didn't compute because of everything else she's been trying to do to this man the whole movie. That whole death scene was bonkers, Looney Tunes crazy, and almost ruined the entire motorcycle chase for me because I enjoyed the motorcycle chase. And then to have this scene just come dead in its tracks and have this nonsensical scene with this outrageous death. It was just the icing on the cake for me. And then that's when they jog away as if they're in Mike Tyson's punch out in the interludes. <laughs> I have to say between those three scenes, you just mentioned the motorcycle scene, this death scene and the boxing scene. I did get a flashback to Casino Royale wondering how many different directors were setting how many different tones. <laughs> yes. You guys were all okay with the sharks with the little headsets on. I mean, that, when that <laughs> happened, Really? I mean, that was a, like a needle on the record. I'm like, I want off. I mean, I wanted out of this movie like mad. I couldn't wait. It was a clock watcher at that point. I was always looking at the counter. How much more of this? How much more of this? All Bond films from the 80s, I remember feeling like they're about 10 minutes too long. And some of it's my child's patience where I was like, you know, you hit the two hour mark. Kids want to do something else. But this one felt two hours long. I mean, I felt like there was 10 minutes of movie and two hours of waiting to get through it. I didn't really have that experience with the length of the movie. The Sharks, all I could think of is Jaws. First of all, the score was a complete ripoff of Jaws. And second, the Sharks really haven't improved that much in 10 years. <laughs> and I actually also did get a funny moment with the Shark POV cam. That was rather <laughs> amusing. But again, I was amused and entertained, perhaps not for the reasons the filmmakers wanted me to be, but I found myself finding a perverse joy in it. I'm hearing this often from you. It's sounding like you're liking this, Arnie, or at least liking this more than Thunderball. I'm shocked. Liking this more than half the Eon films, yes. Mm. One big complaint all three of us had during our Thunderball podcast was the underwater slow-mo battle at the end. No, I didn't complain about that. I liked it. I did complain about it, and to complain, I'm going to repeat here. I was going with this movie for the ride for the first two hours, and then we get to this underwater montage, and I'm a little lost as to what's going on, the way it's filmed. It's a bit more exciting in the scuba scenes and the actual action, but I get a little confused who's doing what to whom, and then it just ends. Yes, that's true, Arnie, but I was more commenting on how they decided to not have a slow-mo under-the-sea giant battle and to find an underwater temple so they actually can use machine guns to have a high-octane battle scene, quote-unquote, under the water. And I thought, of all the changes they made, that one made sense to me because how much I did not enjoy the slow-mo repetitiveness of someone pulling off a mask or shooting a single-shot spear gun underneath the water in Thunderball. Here we have automatic weapons and a big set. I thought it was the best change at the movie it just didn't follow through for me i'm on record as thinking that the underwater stuff was the stuff that was good about thunderball so to not have it is another strike against this movie i like the set i thought it was cool to be in the syrian temple but did i think that this was an incredible action sequence i wanted out i wanted out 90 minutes ago i can't stand this movie I couldn't stand this scene. I couldn't stand most scenes. These scenes are a mixture of, is it over yet? And, oh my God, please make this stop. I mean, to me, another facepalm scene is Bond's been captured. After he's been allowed to run around the ship, calls the British, and they're punished by being dragged to Africa and tied up and left for warlords or something. Bond escapes on a horse that he then uses to jump over the side of a castle down a fall that no one would survive, that no horse would allow themselves to leap <laughs> into. That, and then the visual effects of it all. I mean, that was just the shark scene, this scene. There's one more to come, but I just can't believe that when we get these big action scenes, Brock, the, I guess the gun battle is the best because it's the only one where I'm not screaming at the TV to please stop being so stupid. Wow, I'm, again, not seeing the same movie as you. I will admit that as the movie starts to approach the two-hour mark, I start to not find the action scenes as enjoyable. The horse chase, to which you mention, was the start of my downfall, and I find the entire climax of this movie to actually be its low point. 
the the horse chase, the temple battle, the underwater stuff. I had to rewatch the entire last half hour of this film because I walked away going, what the hell happened? I just did check out that last half hour because it stopped being about characters and started being poorly shot action set piece after poorly shot action set piece. <laughs> I, but I did kind of like the never-ending story shot of Sean Connery as that horse goes over the wall. That was amusing. Oh, God. Nice pull, man. Nice. <laughs> You're dead on on that. Brilliant. That's perfect. Perfect. But when the nukes start flying earlier in the film, when the horse is falling, I feel it's like Richard Donner's best stuff five years too late. Actually, it was right out of Superman 3 to me, this, those missiles flying, exactly like Superman special effects. You're absolutely right on that. But my favorite faceplant moment of the film, the one that after I thought that it couldn't be worse after remote control sharks and the horses falling from perilous heights, Bond and Felix decide that now that they know where the nukes are in Syria, they must enter in grand fashion. And so they somehow convinced the British Navy to shoot them out of a missile that then opens up into <laughs> Willy Wonka-like flying elevators. They can impress some sheep herders who are wondering who the aliens are. I thought that was a callback to the jetpacks from Thunderball. Yep, same thing happened to me. I thought, wow, they can't use the actual jetpack, but they're doing the next best thing. And the jetpack wasn't in any sort of anything but the Eon movie. It wasn't even in the book, wasn't in the treatments at all. I just took it as an aping of the jetpacks, and <laughs> I didn't even find it that ridiculous because I've been spending how many weeks watching Bond? Does jetpack escape was ridiculous the first time, so I went with this as a mode of transport. <laughs> At least it made sense because, yes, he needed to escape, so he flew away. What does this do for you? The nuke is underwater. You don't need to do this. This is just about impressing some poor rural people <laughs> that really don't care who you are. Not one bad guy is killed in this fashion. This is just about posturing. Oh, my God. I can't take no more. I bet it looked good in the trailer. I bet it did. Let's go. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Never Say Never Again? Stuart. I'm going to say never. I'm really going to say never. This is The Pits. I think, I think, let me just, okay, remote control shark, horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you get to that missile, Willy Wonka shit, this is the worst Bond movie. Worst Bond song, worst adventure, the worst pacing problems. Everything about this is nightmarish to me. I thought that Connery was not going to hit a low after Diamonds Are Forever. To come back to do this is just soul-crushing. I have nothing else to say other than I am so glad they didn't make sequels to this. I'm so glad this didn't become some bizarro world other franchise for Bond. These people don't know what they're doing. And this is a stinker that everyone should avoid. Strongest of not recommends. Arnie. I am so torn. I disagree, Stuart, that this is the worst. I mean, the thing I keep coming back to is I was engaged for the first hundred minutes of this movie. And I credit that to two key performances. Neither of whom was Basinger, who we didn't talk about, but she was terrible. There are absolutely ridiculous moments of this. And it did feel at times like Casino Royale because the tonal shifts of this movie come fast and furious to the point that, yeah, I rewatched the ending wondering if I missed something that would explain why at one moment we are in a standard James Bond adventure, the next moment we're in Looney Tunes. But the charisma of Connery carried this. I'm on the verge of recommending it, but I'm going to go a week not recommend. Thank God. <laughs> Thank you, Allah. There are going to be tears of Allah from me if you said this was good. <laughs> it is the weakest of not recommends because the last half hour was arduous. Oh, the worst. And yes, around the time of the horse and the Willy Wonka... <laughs> Now that's all I'm going to think of it as, <laughs> is when the tone just became so nightmarish. But up to that point... It was merely a bad dream. Up to that point, it really was 
going to be one of the stronger recommends for me, but it just flushes <laughs> it away during the last half hour. So, on His Majesty's Secret Service, not recommend. This one, close to a recommend. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there is good performances here which make this movie entertaining. And I have not been entertained for a long time. It's perhaps because I've been desensitized to stupidity in so many of these Bond films time after time. I truthfully, Stuart, you came into this with some schattenfraud thinking, oh, you're going to see what it was like for Marvel. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> and I want to gouge my eyes out so I don't see anymore, okay? I'm just, maybe it's because I have been through the valley of the shadow of death with Eon that seeing a charismatic actor in a story that doesn't confuse me is pleasurable at this point but it then flushes it away in the last half hour so a soft not recommend but glad to see connery back this is a solid not recommend for me i did not enjoy this movie at all i had a lot of problems with it we talked about the tonal shifts. We talked about not really knowing what it wants to say, what it wants to do. It has some wonderful ideas, but it cut its own legs out from underneath it by trying to cram a modern sensibility with an old-fashioned sensibility. And then, what the hell was with that music? This movie had a lot of things going for it. It just did not follow through. I have to say that because the second time I watched it for this podcast, it played pretty well. Still was a bad movie, still had problems with it, but it played, it flowed more. So I don't know how that's possible, but it happened. It's a solid not recommend. There is just no fun for me here. There's no fun to be had. There's fun. If you like James Bond movies like I do, this is a disappointment. But I do acknowledge what Arnie is saying about Sean Connery. I don't think he was horrible in this. I do see some of what you're talking about. I just think, unfortunately, he was saddled with a lot of other problems around him that really dampered what he was doing. So again, that's a not recommend for me. Well, on the subject of Connery, I'm with you on that much. I think that he had a little bit of the old twinkle here. I It made me think about, hey, this is the last time we're going to see him. I, I mean, barring some last-minute reprieve, I really don't think Sean Connery is ever coming back to the Bond series. Well, what do you guys think? I mean, now that we've covered seven of his films, what is your takeaway? What do you feel about the movies that he did, the highs, the lows? For me, it's still the high point of the whole series from Russia with Love. I feel like that one's really special. I feel like it has a quality that no other Bond movie does. And I just really respond to that one a lot. I also really love You Only Live Twice, Goldfinger, and Diamonds Are Forever and, and Never Say Never. Those were the ones I want to forget. But overall, I think he had three really solid ones, and I think that's a pretty good run for any Bond. I agree with you that From Russia with Love still stands as my favorite Bond film. It's the most nuanced. But I think Connery's best performance, we just saw it. But the best movie Connery was in as Bond is from Russia with Love. The Pits, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, the ones where he really didn't want to be there. Yeah, my favorite also for Connery is from Russia with Love. I think we all agree there. I think it's just a really great movie. I also want to say, though, right after that for me was Goldfinger. It's really a fun James Bond movie for me. I enjoyed that a lot. And, you know, I agree with what Arnie said. I think the performance here, he was more game for than we complained about in Diamonds Are Forever and You Only Live Twice, you know. So I think that Connery had a better performance here in a mediocre movie, whereas in You Only Live Twice had a lot of cool things in it. And it was, you know, more fun to watch than, say, a Thunderball. Yeah, I'm going to miss him. I've got to say they, they weren't all great and it ended really sour for me. But I am sad to see him go. I do feel like he really is one of the biggest, most important facets for why this is such a long franchise. I mean, they really do owe it to Connery for those early portrayals, for really giving us the mold that they're still trying to make movies out of. But I think this movie proves that the production team behind a Bond movie really does make a bit of a difference. Yeah, I can't wait to get back to Eon, even if it's got a creaky old Roger Moore. I can't wait for next week. I just hope it's as good as this one. Me too. I hope you enjoyed it as much as you enjoyed this one. We'll find out next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com and find our other Bond shows. You can also find many different shows from many different series, all there 
in the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com. Go to Facebook and follow us there, Twitter. You can also go to our forums. A link is there on our homepage where you can discuss this movie with other listeners like yourself. And if you like us, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review so other people like yourself can find us and listen to this Bond retrospective and get mad at us and agree with us all at the same time like the rest of you are over on Facebook. And join in the fun. And if you really like us, you can hear more of us. Our donation drive is starting to wrap up its first leg. This Friday comes out Survival of the Dead, which is the last podcast in our George Romero Night of the Living Dead retrospective series. You can hear all six of those reviews from the 1960s Night of the Living Dead, the classic Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, the recent Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead are all available to donors who help keep Now Playing on the air, help keep us broadcasting, help keep us paying for our servers and paying for web design and all of that. You can find all the details by going to nowplayingpodcast.com. A donation recommended of $15, minimum of $10 gets you those. And if you go $25, we're going to continue with Zombies through Halloween by reviewing the three remakes of the George Romero films. 1990's Night of the Living Dead, directed by makeup master Tom Savini. 2004's Dawn of the Dead by Zack Snyder. And then... 2008's Day of the Dead, directed by lesser-known director Steve Miner, but we know him from Friday the 13th and some other stuff. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner on the top, you'll find all the details, and you can even hear all of our old donation retrospectives. We've never opened the vault before. We're doing it for the first time. You can hear Child's Play, Jaws, Exorcist, The Thing, Alien, Prometheus... All of this is available to platinum-level donors. You can find the information at nowplayingpodcast.com. The commercial for that is all the titles scrolling up the screen and two over-the-hill people behind. Hey, man, you can hear classics like Child's Play and you can, Jaws, Jaws the Revenge. And they have like little snippets of our podcast playing over those times and in the different colors are highlighted as, as the movies we're talking about are playing behind. Hey, man, is that now playing, man? Yeah, man. Well, turn it up, man. I was definitely thinking about Freedom Rock, actually. Yeah, totally. Totally was. Time Life presents now playing five year retrospective. <laughs> I'm glad to know all those years of watching KPLR went to good use and seeing all of those ads. <laughs> Do they recommend that movie? Buy the disc. <laughs> so we get back to Eon Bond and Roger Moore in the role one more time when Now Playing will return with a view to a kill. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. 
You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Kim, is it Bassinger or Basinger? Yes. Great. I say Basinger. Okay. But Bond helps Domino escape and they reunite with CIA agent Felix Leiter and use a piece of jewelry Largo gave Domino to figure out the bomb's location. (laughs) Did I, am I wrong? No, no, you're that right. just oh, makes just no, saying... no, that just makes no damn sense. Yeah, he's, he's commenting means... on the stupidity yes. of it. <laughs> yes, yes. This is something else, and I'm up for doing something else. <laughs> I am too. Can we change retrospectives? <laughs> I thought you I thought you weren't going to piss off the Bond fan. <laughs> <laughs> too late. When is this coming out? 1983. No, not the movie. This podcast. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no. 1983. Uh, <laughs> We've talked about him before on the show. I can't remember when. Exorcist. <laughs> He's one of his biggest roles of all time, but, yeah. you know. Shutter Island, Minority <laughs> Report. Uh, yeah, I think of him, and I think of the seventh season. The seventh- Absolutely. I Klaus von Bulow. Klaus von Bulow. Uh, <laughs> wrong, wrong villain. Um, Klaus Maria Brandauer. Oh God, I can't even say his name. Klaus Maria Brandauer. Brandauer? Brandauer? I can't. Oh, oh well. Your eyes only. If I misunderstand a single line, I suddenly don't understand why Bond has traveled to a new country. Here, what the fuck is going on? Stuart, are you okay? Are you talking to me? Yeah. There's like massive calamitous noises. Not a, not anything I can hear. <laughs> because you're making them, I think. <laughs> I was to say the same thing, Arnie. Because you're doing it. <laughs> it just kept going. I, I was, it, it, literally, I couldn't keep my train of thought. I, I lost my complete train of thought with that noise. Um... What was I saying? Well, I that remember. was what's funny because I thought you were saying what the hell was going on in the script after <laughs> you were saying that the script is much tighter than the other okay, one. Okay, okay, okay. The horse, by the way, apparently it was real. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It wasn't like a dummy horse. <laughs> the fall off the cliff was not. Yeah, well, yeah, but like the horse hitting the water apparently or something because there's a lot of hullabaloo about horses being in danger and things. There was a lot of problems around that. Uh, and speaking of Superman 3, of course, the brother is Brad from Superman 3. Oh, I and don't know who Brad Eric is. from Willow, but you'll, we'll get there with our Superman retrospective one of these I'll days. know Brad in about nine months. Yeah, you will. You know Superman 3. Yeah, but I don't remember Brad. I remember He's Lana. the drunk guy. I remember... He's the drunk Cl- guy who's... I thought right, Clark right. got drunk. No, it's the, the... Richard Pryor, you know, he's the guy who uh, 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 Lana Lang uh, wants to get with Lana Lang, who's an old high school boyfriend, and he's a drunk, and nope. the computer thing. Nope. All right, forget it. You guys, forget <laughs> it. Cut that. That's next. <laughs> yeah. I, next. Yeah, I'll get this. Super, I mean, my memories of that are dull and dim, and I my memories <laughs> of want that them involved. to stay that way, but uh, they won't. My memories involve silver eyes and a computer. Yeah, I know what you remember. I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> I did the transition again. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a hard habit to break. Let me let me do it clean for you. Unless that unless you feel that works. Do it clean. Give me give me a second take just so I have choices in editing. Ooh, that means it's gonna use a second take. Okay. <laughs> yes, it does.
Yes, it does. <laughs> I see through you. At least now they're trying playing. to be polite. <laughs> now playing will return with a view to a kill. Give me a third take without the laugh. Now playing will return with a view to a kill. Give me a fourth take where you don't overmodulate a view to a kill or over. Oh my lord! I thought it was a second take, <laughs> not a twenty-second take. <laughs> Depends. Can he get it right? Wow. Okay. All right, Napoleon. <laughs> now playing will return with a view to a kill. Okay, that's my walk-in. Horrible walk-in. That, that was, was terrible. Walk-in? I thought, I thought terrible walk-in. That was really embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, it was. And, <laughs> and the whole world will hear that in the bloopers. <laughs> Fine with me. <laughs>